Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a pastor and elder here at Resonate. I'm glad you're with us uh, this morning for a bit of a unique uh, day. Uh, before we do that, though, um, I just want it as things continue uh, in the Middle East uh, and stuff like that, I at least want to stop and pray. Um, there's certainly not the time to get into a whole geopolitical conversation around our stance on it, but um, uh, from here, from this side of the ocean, at least the least we could do uh, is probably pray. And it's by saying least, it's still the mo- one of the most powerful weapons we have. And so um, that we would pray uh, for those over there. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into what we're doing today. So God, you, you listen to the prayers of your people, Father. And so we pray for you to have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Father, we lift up those who have lost family, loved ones, whose lives have been upended and destroyed, we grieve, we lament all that's going on. God, might you meet them in their pain and in their need. God, would you show us how to intervene, how to love in a time of hate, how to be peacemakers in a time of war. Father, we pray for those who have been taken from their families that they would be released. You would meet them in their despair and bring hope and safety and restoration. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Father, we ask that you would soften the hearts of our leaders and clear their eyes that they might advocate for humanity, humans flourishing, not its destruction. Whatever that looks like. Lord, give them courage and discernment to make hard decisions in the face of adversity. Make decisions that restore humanity to those they might see even as other. So Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Amen. Now, uh, with Generation Sunday, uh, we're going to do something a little different. Um, We've, uh, the text that we would get to probably didn't make the most sense for Generation Sunday in the book of Matthew, and so... Uh, instead, um, we're going to do a bit of a flyover uh, for Matthew 1 through 12. It's been a year since we really started Matthew. We started it at Advent last year. And so um, this will be an opportunity for us to go, okay, what, what did Matthew speak of? What, what do we remember of the storyline? So this becomes a little bit of a, of a Q&A of how much you reta- retained of all the things we talked about, uh, but also even for some of our youth in the room to uh, showcase some of their uh, biblical knowledge. Um, I have no doubt that Jackson Kelly will raise his hand and let us know about some of his uh, breadth of knowledge. And so, um, yeah, I look forward to this time. And uh, it was fun in the first service. I'll see if I can shave off five to 10 minutes, uh, but we'll try our best. And so, um, yeah, we're going to be covering a lot of the themes that we covered so far walking through the book of Matthew. And so Matthew opens with this genealogy. Now, what do we remember about the genealogy of Matthew? He has a unique focus. He has unique additions um, in his story. Like what? So we have two genealogies in the Gospels. Luke definitely goes back to all the way to Adam. Uh, Matthew doesn't quite go back that far. Where does Matthew go to? Who are some of the biggest names in the history of the Jewish people? Abraham, Abraham. yeah. We, we start in Abraham, 
and then we get 14 generations, and then we get uh, a focus then also on David. Uh, Matthew definitely wants his audience to know that Jesus is in this master line of God's promised people, that he is this seed that was promised from Abraham, and that he is this Messiah. That's what Matthew really wants us to see, too. He's this king, this promised king in the line of David, that he has a genealogy claim to the line of David. And so there's that, but there's also some unique features. Like if you were writing a genealogy, there's some things that Matthew includes that are a bit peculiar, like what? Yeah, Rahab's one of them. Who else? Tamar is another one, and there's at least one more. Ruth, yeah. What do we know about these three women? Are they Israelites? No, they are definitely outsiders in the story. They are Gentile ladies uh, become part of the genealogy of, of Jesus. So if you're setting out to write, hey, this is the purebred Messiah who's true, like truly in line, you wouldn't go out of your way to include these uh, random women in the story. Um, not only that, but we, we get a highlight of David's worst moment, uh, which is including about Uriah uh, and Bathsheba in the storyline. And then we also get Matthew go, and there was a time when we were in captivity because we weren't doing everything that was great. Matthew includes these bits of information in his genealogy. Now, I'll fast forward a little bit. Who do we know Matthew to be? What does church history say is the story of Matthew? Yeah, tax collector. Now, who are the tax collectors? Yeah, outsiders, yeah. What, what are their jobs? What are they doing? Who are they te- collecting taxes for? Yeah, so yeah, they are working on behalf really of the Roman Empire who really just use military might to control the people that they rule and tax them in order to pay the soldiers that they use for military might. And so, um, but they learned that there's a lot less killing when they actually appoint people of amongst the people. And so there were Jewish people who kind of sold out their own people to go collect taxes. Now, we don't necessarily know why Matthew did. We don't know if he was really greedy. We don't know if Matthew grew up and was kind of always treated really poorly and just kind of wrote off his own people. We don't, we don't know. We don't know exactly why. But there was enough of what had happened. He felt enough not a part of the story and the blessings of God that he decided to go a different direction. But Matthew was an outsider. He would have been treated as such. He would have been rejected by his people as well, as much as he might have chose to reject his own people too. So if this is that Matthew, and he's experienced walking with this Jesus, Jesus had invited him into this unique people that, that Jesus is making, then Matthew will also tell stories to highlight that very fact. And Matthew's reminding us, even in Jesus' own genealogy, there were people that were totally on the outside. Whether a Gentile woman who gets pretty, in a pretty rough situation with uh, um, uh, Judah, whether a, um, a woman who's a part of uh, uh, the Canaanites who basically has to lie to sneak these spies around, or this this Ruth, this Moabite who was never really part of the story, but she, she had the sweetest mother-in-law that she could possibly have and becomes a part of engrafted into the story. Like Matthew will highlight these kind of stories time and time and time again. So that's, that's just the setup. That's just the genealogy. 
And most of us read over the genealogy like, this is boring. But Matthew does so much already just in this genealogy. And then we start getting into the Christmas stories. Matthew and Luke is really the sources of our main Christmas stories. Uh, and Matthew gives us a few unique ones, and Luke gives us some others. So I'm going to need a few volunteers. I need at least two to start. There will be multiple volunteer opportunities as we go. We got a lot less kids in the room than last service. Sure. Come on, Faith. Who else? Is that a hand raised? I can't tell. Amos, you want to do it? Amos. Amosi, come on up. All right. You got your own cheering gallery, Amosi. I think you had the cheering gallery yesterday, too, cheering on your soccer game. Uh, so um, we get, we get uh, let's get some costumes going. Let's give you a smaller cloak. The last one was a little too big for JB uh, McCabe. So um, here, how about this? You want to throw this cape on? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. And you get a baby. <laughs> the baby's not here yet, so maybe find a way to hide that baby. So we get the start of the story. Now Luke will spend time focusing a lot on Mary. Mary's going to have a whole song, and there's going to be all sorts of stuff. Matthew actually focuses quite a bit on Joseph in the story. Now there's a reason for that, and we'll see why in a moment. Because Joseph, God decides to speak to Joseph. And how does God speak to Joseph? A dream, right? Yeah. So. I appreciate the hand raising, but you can blur it out too. Yeah, that's fine. Um, in a dream. Actually, Joseph will have multiple dreams. Now, who else do we know that's named Joseph who has dreams? Joseph, the dreamer, yeah, from, from Genesis. Yeah, one of, one of uh, Jacob's kids who has all sorts of dreams, right? He has this amazing technicolor dream code and has all these dreams. And so... I think Matthew is drawing our eyes to that story, and we will see why, because he does it time and time and time and time and time and time again. Um, but Joseph has these dreams, says, hey, there's going to be a baby born, and you're going to name it. Do you know what Joseph had to name his baby? Anybody else? Yes. Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeshua, or really Joshua. There's a whole long history why we use Jesus instead. But Yeshua. And so uh, he finds out that this woman, who's not his wife yet, is pregnant. So I'm sure he's surprised by this piece of information, yet he's a good, faithful man, decides to, to do their honorable thing and stick it out. And so he has this dream, and that's what happens. But um, they also find out that it's, it's this fulfillment of this prophecy out of Isaiah that this baby would be born. And they're also going to call it, yeah, good job, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God, what, which means... What does Emmanuel mean? What is it? No. That's actually what Jesus means. Jesus means God saved. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Yeah. So they have these wonderful names for Jesus right from the get-go. Cool. So baby's here. Uh, and baby arrived. Good. And so... Uh, yeah, so we find out there's some other characters in the story. Now, Luke will focus on shepherds, but Matthew tells us about these guys who come from a faraway land, right? Who are not the shepherds. Luke, Luke focuses on the wise men, right? These, these magi from the east, which is probably like Babylon. Uh, and so they come. So I need a magi. Anybody want to be a magi for me? Ransom, come be a... You could be some 
pagan astrologer, right? <laughs> so they're sometimes called kinks. I don't, I don't know why. There's a long history, but um, they're, they're not necessarily kinks. Well, um, so how many were there? No, there weren't. We, there's only three gifts. We actually don't know how many uh, wise men there were. Um, so we know there's three gifts. The church history has always put three wise men at the scene, but we have no clue how many there actually were. Cool. So, but we do need a Herod. So why don't you come up and be a Herod? And I'm only going to give you a pseudo crown. This is actually a tiara. Um, which is a lot like, hey, go, go as far to the edge of the stage. There. All right, come there. No, don't jump in there. Come over here, Jackson. Right here, right here. No, not you. Go, go back. Get out of here. Go back to Bethlehem. All right. All right. Magi, far east. Herod setting up a shop in Jerusalem, Bethlehem. And so the Magi, and if you cover, we're here for the sermon, there's a whole shift in the zodiac around this time, and it becomes, it's a long fabulous history. And so something changes in the sky and they go, we, there's been a king born to, to the West. And we have our prophet Balaam speak about this. Our old ancient prophet, our Babylonian prophet Balaam, who visited Israel a long, long time ago, spoke about this a long, long time ago. And so that we, we need to go. There's been a king born. Now, where do you go when you find out there's a king born in a country? <laughs> to the palace, right? Who's at the palace? Herod, who's only like a pseudo king anyways. He's not even an Israelite. He's an Edomite. And so um, he's set up shop. He's extremely wealthy, extremely powerful in Jerusalem. And so you come and visit. And you're asking him what kind of questions? Uh, What are you trying to find out? What are the Magi looking for? The king. Yeah. A new king? No. Look at that. Uh, I'm the all-powerful, everlasting king. That's right. That is exactly what the king was saying. And Herod was having none of this. But Herod's a little bit sly, so he's like, well, some of our people said that Bethlehem might be the site of this. Why don't you, Magi, go and check things out and see if you can find this king, right? So you send... And then give me his coordinates. And then give you his coordinates so that you could do what? Kill him. That's right. Kill him. So... I know. I, I could sit down. Do you just want to do the whole rest of this? Um, and so you find baby Jesus and Joseph and Mary... And it's not Lion King. Um, this is certainly not going to match our time. And so, baby's born. This moment happens. The Magi come. Now, Matthew, once again. Who's, who are these guys? Yeah, where are they from? They're somewhere in the east. They are not Israelites. They are pagan astronomers. This guy is the king of Israel right now. Who's worshiping Jesus and who wants Jesus killed? The, the, the dirty outsider pagan astronomers, astrologers, not even astronomers, are the people who are at the stable, who are actually protecting Jesus. They will refuse to go back and tell him where Jesus is. And the king, the powerful king over all things in Israel right now, is the one who's like the outsider in the story. And this is the guy who becomes like the centerpiece. It's so fascinating that Matthew is highlighting just the weirdness of the whole situation. And it's not... The powerful, the wealthy, the centerpieces that most people probably expected. It's pagan Gentiles who come to the scene. All right, and so, guess what? You start having some more dreams, right? Yeah, because you're Joseph. That's what Joseph does. Fall asleep. You don't need, oh, sure, you can fall asleep. And so, he has these dreams that say, hey, Herod's trying to kill 
you guys should head down to Egypt and try to get out of here. So you guys are going to head, I don't know, somewhat off the stage. Actually, yeah, don't be done yet. Just try to head to the corner of the stage. You head back east. I'll take your crown. And by east, I mean your seats. And so head back east to your seats. And so, no, no, Herod's still around. You haven't died yet. And so you guys head down to Egypt. Keep going that way. And you seek safety there. Now, while you're down there in Egypt, Herod dies. Kicks the bucket. I need that crown. You're so... Jackson. Thank you for dramatizing it. All right. Your tomb is right there, right next to your mom. And so you find out the good news. Herod's dead. But there's some bad news, too. Herod's kids because he's already a terrible dad, are also very questionable individuals. And so you return to town but find out, hey, Jerusalem, Judah, it's not the best place to be. And so you keep coming, and you end up in Nazareth. Stick town. This town that's like, it's not enough that one of the disciples is like, can anything good even come out of Nazareth? It's just this little town. And this is where you raise little baby Jesus, right? All right, I'll take baby Jesus. I'll take your cloak. You guys are done for now. Can I get your cloak back? Good job. Who needs a Christmas pageant when we have that? I know, I did drop Jesus. There we go. And so, um, but once again, there's, there's such an upside downness to all of this story, how it's not about power and wealth and who he decides to make the centerpieces of things. And, and not only that, but Jesus is raised in this like no-name town to parents of really insignificance. They're not people of title and position. He's not raised in palace to make political decisions and learn how the economics of a country works or anything like that. He works a regular job. He's a tecton, which means he might be a stonemason. He could be a carpenter. There's a lot of different jobs that tecton could mean. And so that's, that's what he does. And for 30 years of his life, that's Jesus' existence. God-man on earth is working a regular blue-collar job in a small town. And, and it's so fascinating. The king of kings, the king of the universe, was living this way. The hands that would be nailed to bleed for the salvation of the world are the hands that are chiseling rocks and swinging a hammer. And it should reframe, like, even vocation and jobs and things like that, that it's not like Jesus is in there going, all right, when, when will I finally make a difference in this world? I think there's legitimate, like, this is, this is just as much what God wanted for Jesus' life in that moment as the moment he dies on the cross. And there's significance that even comes out of menial work. And then we move to chapter three. And, oh no, my notes are out of order. Don't worry, I'll fix this real quick. There we go. Chapter three. Now, once again, we, we had the Joseph story. Where did they, Joseph helped them get down to where? Egypt, which is also how Exodus kind of, or the end of Genesis works, right? They end up in Egypt, and they end up coming up out of Egypt. Now, he's got to work the details a little bit differently, but when, when Israel heads out of Egypt, what do they face? What's the first obstacle they face? It's a large body of water, yes. The Red Sea. Now, Nazareth is very far from the Red Sea. Um, so we encounter a different body of water, and there's a man there baptizing. What body of water are we talking about? Who's, who's doing some baptisms? John the Baptist, J the B, and what's the name of the water? Jordan River? Yeah, it's good. 
So, John the Baptist, fired up individual. He, he's even wearing basically the Elijah costume, and he is preaching. He's saying the axe is in the hand, the winnowing fork, he's got, there's going to be fire rain down. He, he's, 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 a, he's just like Elijah. He, he just thinks everything's going to hell in the handbasket. Sorry if I use that word, but I use it in the context of like the negative. And so, um, and, uh, and people need to repent. Like the way the country's going is not good. People need to repent and return to what God actually desires and designs for his people. And he particularly, I would argue, speaks against the leadership of Israel, hence the winnowing fork and the ax. There's some imagery there around the temple in Jerusalem. And so there's all of this language that's being spoken. And the leadership shows up, and John the Baptist is having none of it. He's sort of like, look, unless you want to repent and actually live the right life, he's like, what, what are you even doing here? And then Jesus comes along, his cousin, and Jesus, uh, Jesus wants to be baptized. At first, John's like, no, you, you get baptized me, but Jesus will, will be baptized by John. Sky's open, and what happens? Yeah, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, and God says what? This is my son, yeah, who I'm well pleased, which is a really important paradigm. How much ministry has Jesus done that we have recorded at this moment in time? Zero, right? I mean, this, he's just shown up on the scene. Uh, and yet, God's declaration to his son is, I am well pleased, which is a really important gospel piece, I would argue. Like when we put our faith in Jesus, one of the identifiers we get are sons and daughters as well, that we are in Christ. And so the promises, the words given to Christ are also our words too. So before you go out and do anything amazing for God, before any piece of obedience ever truly happens, the, the, the statement that comes to us in him is that you are a son, you are a daughter, and because of Christ, God is well pleased already in you. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful promise. And so, full trinity on display in this moment. And then chapter four. So they have to, um, so once again, left Egypt, they encountered a body of water, uh, baptism happens, so there's a going through the water. What happens next for Israel in the Israel story? They get a, a time of testing, right? For how many days? Great. So Jesus goes where? To the wilderness for 40 days, right? We're just tracing the Exodus story through Jesus because I think Matthew has, a, has an agenda here. He, he wants us to see these parallels as if there's a new people, a, a new kind of people that God is making. And um, there's, there's, he's the new Moses that had been promised. And that he is the Israel that is being fulfilled in the story. Matthew has all these beautiful, beautiful pieces of what he's doing. So Jesus goes to the wilderness. He's tempted out there. He doesn't even get any manna, unlike the Israelites. He's hungry. And God tempts him. God, or uh, the, the Satan tempts him. Uh, about food, about power, about protection. And Jesus quotes back the very verses, the very lessons that Israel learned in the desert. Like, man doesn't live on bread alone. Like, according to Deuteronomy and Exodus, these are the lessons. And Jesus is just quoting back to, to Satan these very teachings, these very truths. And, and Jesus fulfills in his wilderness time, I would argue, some of the things that Israel couldn't. And so he comes back from the wilderness and he starts preaching. And what does Jesus preach? What's the main message that every gospel writer says, like, as Jesus starts his ministry, here's what he came to say. Repent for what? 
kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which gospel writer, is at hand. And so all of speaking of the kingdom, this is the good news that God has drawn near, that God is imminent, God is in their midst, that, that the kingdom is here. And he starts calling, Jesus starts calling his disciples in the story. Now, as he go to Torah University or uh, the great halls of Jerusalem to recruit his wonderful disciples? No, of course, like we, we know. Who does he call? A bunch of fishermen at first. So these, these boys would have gone through Torah study until about 13, and then because they weren't the cream of the crop, they said, hey, just go do your dad's job. Go be a fisherman. That's what they do. And so they're, fish, they're blue-collar kind of guys. They're not exceptional. They're not everybody that everyone would expect the Messiah to pick. Uh, they were kind of nobodies. Once again, who's Matthew? Tax collector, an outsider. It's, he, he's going to make sure we, we highlight that this wasn't about the people of prominence and position and power, all the ways that you would expect the story of the king who came to go. And he's reminding us of this. And Matthew, or Jesus starts drawing crowds, people of various diseases, those suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, people are paralyzed, people the, from the pagan or Gentile Decapolis, people outside the region, all this sort of stuff. It's a very mixed bag. Now, what do you think this community is going to be like if that's the collection of people? It's going to be like messy, right? You have a whole lot of people that have been very isolated or ostracized probably for a lot of life. You have some demons that possess people probably still being drawn in. So who knows what kind of chaos that that brings with it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that is happening in this crowd. And it's to this crowd that Jesus will now preach one of his most famous sermons, which is the Sermon on the Mount. But even calling it that is once again, Exodus, out of Egypt, cross the water. We end up in 40 days in the wilderness. What happens to the Israelites after 40 days in the wilderness? Where do they go? Mount Sinai, right? It's the next part of the story to receive all the instruction that the Lord had for them, right? Matthew goes, hey, and then Jesus went to this mount, and we're going to spend three chapters of all of Jesus's like main collective teaching. And so we get that for three chapters. We're, so uh, we get all sorts of stuff. He starts by pronouncing um, blessing to various groups of people, typically marginalized and suffering individuals, the poor in spirit, the meek, the, those who mourn, peacemakers, folks like that. And he encourages humility, compassion, focusing on the righteousness and the kingdom of God. And he describes this crowd, this weird makeup of followers at this point in time. He says, you guys are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The light of the world's not Caesar in Rome. The light of the world is not Herod on his throne. It's you guys, which would have probably blown their mind to just be given such a title and dignity in that moment. But that's the kind of people God uses and has always used. But Jesus is so strange to people. They even think, hey, are you throwing out the Old Testament? He seems to want to address that right away. Like in the sermon, he's sort of like, look, don't think I've come here to just throw all this out. I've actually come to fulfill. And there's a lot of language, if you go back to the sermon, a lot of language of what fulfill and abolish means. But it's so much about Jesus has come to embody all that the Torah had always been teaching us and directing us to. That, that he is truly, if you want to see the Torah on full display, Jesus is it. This is what God, if you were to, like, if you were to see what humanity, what we as humans were meant to be and to flourish as, Jesus is it. 
And so we see that. And Jesus starts speaking to things around like our own hearts, like the internal dynamics, not just the external dynamics, that we need renovated hearts in some ways, how we treat other people, particularly our relationships with others, even to the point of loving our enemies. Because loving your friends or brothers and sisters, there's some simplicity to it. Like, can we love our enemies? This is the unique holy life. He points to humility and honesty in our spiritual disciplines, how we pray, how we are generous, how we fast. He speaks about money plenty in the Sermon on the, round, sermon on the Mount um, that can take our eyes off the kingdoms. It causes us to be greedy or anxious or worried and that we should trust God with what we have and what he provides. It talks about how the way we see others, that we would operate in such a way that we see our own sin always as greater in the situation. And that that probably will take care of most judgmental kind of attitudes if we always see our sin as the biggest in the room. And he gives us this new way of seeing others that would extend more mercy and compassion, even to have this good eye, this generous eye, that we would almost have a Genesis 1 eye and not a Genesis 3 eye. Um, And what I mean by that is that sometimes uh, we could develop a theology where we look for all the original sin everywhere, where everything is why humanity is the worst. When the start of the story is that God created things and that ultimately they're good and he's going to redeem all those things. And so will we have the eye that looks for what God is doing? Will we see the goodness of God in this world? And then he speaks to how this is a narrow way. This is not going to be for everyone. There's a specific way to live. And there's those who are going to teach about some of this stuff. And you're going to tell the good teachers from the bad teachers by the fruit that they actually bear in their lives, which... As I said, there's a renovation of the heart conversation here. So do these people have grace and mercy and joy and peace and patience? Not have they accomplished all the ministry tasks that they should. And lastly, just like Exodus once again, when God's finished giving the Israelites all their commands, what does he do? He leaves them with like this choice, right? He said, I need you all on one side of the mountain and the other half of you on this other side. And you're going to know that there's blessings and curses that come with all these instructions that you commit to. In the Sermon on the Mount, and sort of the same way. He says, look, you can take all my teaching, and if, and if you listen and obey, it's like building a house on a very sturdy place, on a rock. But if you don't, it's like building a house on the sand. And so he kind of leaves it with this choice at the end of how they are now going to live. In Matthew 8, we sort of see Jesus' teaching start to be lived out. So um, what does he do next? He starts healing people. So let's get another volunteer up. I gotta bust these in enough. All right, Rory. Come on up. Break up our time. You get probably the coolest part of the costumes. There you go. So, what? Who are these folks? Yeah, Roman. We find a story of a Roman centurion whose servant is struggling. Who's sick? And we find lepers and all this kind of stuff. And, and Jesus will heal this Roman centurion's servant and then say, never in all of Israel have I found such faith to a Roman centurion, right? But Jesus just said, we are called to love our enemies. And what does he go to is one of the first stories. Israel's enemies, right? And, and so he brings healing. He brings this sort of... Um, uh, blessing even to the nations. He, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Once again, mother-in-law, a leper, uh, 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 a Roman centurion. I guess mother-in-laws are really negative for some reason. But um, 
you have sort of these non-centerpieces that people would expect in the story of the king become the centerpieces. But who is Matthew? Yes, I mean, if someone wants to tell a story of why we should even engage and love the romance, it is someone like Matthew. And then Jesus says, hey, we should go to the other side of the lake, so I need two more volunteers. Let's have you, let's actually have you way over here. You're, you're going to move to the garrisons on the other side of the lake. Let's do Ben. Let's do you. All right, we'll do the two of you. All right, let's see if we can do this. Pull this one off. We're just going to have the longest service ever. Come over to this side, you, both of you. You're over here. One of you gets to be Jesus. Who wants to be Jesus? Ben, do you want to be Jesus? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You've more Jesus's hair than he does. So <laughs> you got the longer locks, according to most movies. Um, and so, let's have you be Jesus. That's that's more Jesusy than than that is. So, according to once again movies and TV shows. And so uh, we have Jesus go. Hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, who's on the other side of the lake? <laughs> Folks like this, right? It's, the capitalists, the Gentile crowd, it is, they got, they're raising pigs, they're doing all sorts of stuff over there on the other side of the lake. And so you, as a disciple who's been raised in the Galilee, are like, I'm not so interested in this. And Jesus will actually say, look, if you're going to be my disciple, there's some, there's some costs associated with this. And, and you're calling your disciples to go over here. Now, where else in Israel's history, because this isn't a new story, where there was at least a prophet that was called to go to the very Gentile world to go preach to them and let them know the, the good news. There's only so many jo- prophets that do this. Yes. Uh, say Jonah. Yeah. Jonah, right? So we're about to get in a boat. We're about to even hear about a sleeping individual on a boat, which is a whole lot of Jonah in it. And so, but they're being sent to this crowd. Now, so you're in a boat, pretend like you're sleeping. Not you. You're sleeping. You're, you're a disciple, and the waves are crashing, and they're going crazy, and, and you are scared out of your mind. There you go. And, you're, and you want to wake up Jesus because you think he could do something about it. And so what does Jesus do in that moment? Do you know? Storms are raging, and he, tell, he stops the storms. He calms the storm in that moment. So however you want to calm the storm. Shut up. It's actually... It's actually not far from, Jesus actually says, hush. There's, anyways, that's great. And so he calms, he calms the, the seas in that moment. And they eventually make it over. And disciples are amazed, right? What do the disciples say? Do you know? What would you say if somebody just stood up and something? Yeah, well, something like that. Oh, you're, he's still your friend. And so it's sort of like, who is this guy? That's sort of the question that they have. But they make it to the other side. And who do they encounter? It's not necessarily a Roman, but they encounter two men who are doing what? Do you know? Come, come to the other side. You encounter this individual or two people. Do you know what they do? They're like crazy. They are demon-possessed. They are shackled because they're so harmful to themselves. You are demon-possessed. Can you do that? There you go. And I'm sure the disciples are like, see, Jesus, this is why we don't go to the capitalists. Um, but... What did Jesus do? Do you know? What did Jesus do, everybody? Yeah, heals this demon-possessed person. So however you want to heal her. And so 
when Jonah wouldn't go to the people across the way to bless them ultimately, Jesus does. Jesus is the better Jonah in the story and takes his disciples along. Now, do you know what happens after the demons leave you? Yes, they go into a bunch of pigs and then run off a cliff. It's the weirdest story. But it does, it's what happens. Now, all the people in the town are suddenly like, Jesus, you need to leave. And I think part of that is because, yes, they're thankful that Jesus drove out these demons, but they just lost a chunk of their economy probably in these pigs. And so there's an analogy there that sometimes when Jesus enters in and Jesus does the spiritual work that he's going to do, it's also going to sometimes deal with the things that probably we're comfortable about, our pocketbooks, um, the way sometimes we live our life, the houses we live in, stuff like that. And Jesus brings some challenge to those things. All right, I think we're done with the three of you. All right, uh, leave your props here for now. All right, and so uh, they sail back across the, ocean, or the Sea of Galilee, uh, and then we get a paralyzed man lowered through the roof. Um, well, for the sake of time, we're not going to act that one out. Um, so if anybody wants to start digging, take your time. Uh, that's what we need, more leaks in our roof around here. Uh, and so he heals this man. And, but before he does that, the man's lowered on the ground. And what does Jesus say to him at first? Because he doesn't heal him right away. What's the first thing that happens? Yeah, yeah. He says, your sins are forgiven. Yes, Jesus notices the faith of the friends, but then says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now, where can your sins be forgiven in Israel? At the temple, in the temple alone. You would bring your cows and your sheep and stuff like that, and the priest would actually pronounce, like atonement, your, your forgiveness of sins in that moment. But Jesus is up here in Galilee. You'd have to hightail it 70 miles to go do that. And Jesus is taking on the role of the priest and the temple itself by standing there and saying, your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, the religious people, do they take too kindly to that? No. They're, they're not so happy what Jesus is doing here. Um, and then Jesus is sort of like, okay, you really want to see some power? And then he heals the man, and he starts walking, which is incredible. It's like such a celebration. But they're, they're really frustrated by this. And, and then Jesus points out to them, he says, look, he starts speaking of the Son of Man, which a lot of people expected to be the Son of Man would come like with vengeance. He's sort of the son of, of Adam, like Abel, come to avenge Cain, or uh, sometimes the Daniel image, that he's come to like reset this world as it should be. And so there's a lot of that expectation that the Son of Man was going to come and drive out the Romans and cleanse this place, and we're going to be set up again. And Jesus comes and says, the son of man, what if the Son of Man came for forgiveness? Like, I know you guys are expecting judgment. And things. What, what if the Son of Man is here for forgiveness? And, and that's sort of the, where we're left in that story of the paralytic. It's such a fascinating story. And then he goes and he meets the, the author of this book, Matthew, right? Who's a what? Task collector, outsider kind of the story. And decides that also, calls him to be a disciple and also decides to have dinner. Now, what kind of friends do you think Matthew has? questionable ones, probably, uh, all sorts of people that are probably on the outside as well. And Jesus sits down, has dinner with them, which is an incredible movement of God towards these, the collection of outside people in the story. And guess what? The religious leaders, are they excited about this one either? No, not at all. Uh, but the Son of Man's come to bring forgiveness, not judgment. And so he's moving towards them. And so he has this meal. The religious people aren't happy about it. But even John the Baptist's disciple seems sort of questioning stuff. And they're like, why, 
why don't you guys fast? What are you really doing here, Jesus? And Jesus starts speaking of new wine and new wineskins. He's like, look, what I've come to bring, there's, there's a new movement of God happening. And these old paradigms, either John the Baptist's old paradigm, that's like hellfire brimstone, or the religious leader's paradigm of judgment and stuff like that. It, there's, there's a new way that the old systems aren't going to work for. And then, uh, let's see, we hear about a synagogue ruler. Now, once again, this is actually a person of prominence in the story, this, this individual. They, they rule the synagogue. They're probably a person of respect and title. And, and this man's daughter is really, really sick, and they want Jesus to come and heal. But the story gets interrupted. What does it get interrupted with? The woman who has problems, he said. Yeah, uh, without going into too many medical details, yes. This woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Now, what can you go do in a Jewish community if you've been bleeding for 12 years? Nothing. You can do nothing. You aren't allowed to go to synagogue. You had to pronounce that you are unclean all the time when you're near people. You'd probably, at this point in history, been kind of living on the outskirts of town. Uh, you would have been removed from so much of society. But this woman kind of makes her way through the crowd, which shows a lot of boldness on her part. Uh, she shouldn't probably have, at least by culture, have been doing that. But believes that this Jesus is such a healer that she, she grabs the corners of his tassels, which she just believes that there's healing there, and is healed. But Jesus stops. He doesn't go, okay, I really got to get to this woman. I gotta, really got to get to this, this guy's daughter. But he stops, and he addresses her. And... And he speaks to her. He actually speaks in such a way that really dignifies this woman in the story. As much as the power person in town, which is the synagogue ruler, is on his agenda, he stops and takes this moment, even for this woman who's been bleeding for years and years and years and years and years, and, and calls her daughter and welcomes her back into the community by cleansing her, by healing her. And then eventually he does go to Jairus' daughter and heals her as well. He heals blind men, demon-possessed, mute. He keeps going around Galilee, healing all the people that probably should be cared for in the community and are not. Enough that Jesus goes, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. There's no shepherd for them. There's no leadership for these people. The, the leaders are failing these people. He's like, and there's a harvest, and there's something that, that, that is so ready to be harvested right now, but we just need workers. And so what does he do? He takes his disciples and goes, I'm sending you guys. And I'm not sending you to the Gentiles. That's not the mission at this point. I'm sending you to the lost sheep of Israel. He says, don't go to the Gentiles. But don't bring any of your stuff. You're going to go to town, and you have to rely on the Torah people doing the Torah things. You have to find people of hospitality who will welcome you in. You, you're, you can't, don't take anything. You need to go to these places. And when they welcome you in, let them know that God is near to them, that the kingdom is near. And there's going to be people who just reject you, who are not following the ways of the Lord, and brush your shoes off and move on to the next town. And hear me, not only will people reject you that way, it may get worse. And you start speaking of persecution and stuff like that, which Matthew, as an author now, is probably well acquainted with. And so um, we're, we're kind of left with that. And Jesus warns them, look, this, this kingdom that I've come to bring, it's upside down. It's not like the world. The world is about money and power and control and sometimes how we use the body and stuff like that. And so there's going to be a division here. We're almost done. We're in chapter 11. So we find out uh, John the Baptist is in prison in the story. 
And now John the Baptist has probably been hearing some of the stuff of Jesus. So if you are the fiery guy who's ready for the nation to be purged of all of its wickedness, and you find out Jesus is healing centurions, servants, and telling people to love their enemies and stuff like that, you'd probably have some questions, right? Which John the Baptist seemed to do. He's sort of like, look, Jesus, uh, are you really the Messiah? Because this is not how I thought it was going to be. And Jesus answers him, yeah, I, I'm really it. And John, I love you, but I, I don't think you, you have all the pieces together. Now, before anybody would be like, oh, Jesus kind of told John the Baptist, Jesus goes out of his way at that point while John's followers are still there to go, look, I love my cousin. He is amazing. He might have a few things wrong, but John is exactly who God said he was supposed to be. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. Sure, he's fiery. Sure, he misses the point sometimes, but that is exactly what God wanted out of John the Baptist. And he reminds the people, look, John came and he came with repentance. He came eating insects and living the aesthetic lifestyle. He was all fired up. And you guys, that wasn't the message you wanted to hear. I come with mercy. I'm eating with sinners. I'm talking about new wine. And you guys are rejecting that too. And he's pointing out, like, God's sending messengers and you guys are rejecting even very different kinds of messengers and they're still rejecting him. And so Jesus pronounces woes to the people. It's like, look, you guys are like the old cities that also rejected the poor, didn't show hospitality, practiced idolatry. You guys are like that all over again. And so he speaks of all these kind of things. And Jesus invites people in saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. My way is what I'm calling you to. And then the last chapter, we've covered about half of it. We get into more controversies with the Pharisees, particularly around Sabbath. And it becomes an easy moment for Jesus to teach about how he understands the Torah. The, the question, like, do we interpret the Torah through the lens of mercy, loving neighbors, caring for others? or through a lens of very strict obedience, enough that it causes people to be rejected and marginalized. Because Jesus invites his people to go, we understand the Torah and the laws through the lens of mercy, not sacrifice. And all this teaching gets continued, he heals demons, people accuse him of all sorts of stuff, and then Jesus, I think, has some pretty stern teaching of saying, look, if there's a movement of God happening, Demons are being driven out right in front of your eyes, but yet you guys are standing there calling it satanic, calling it of Beelzebub. It's like you guys are standing in the way of what, exactly what God is doing in the world. And if you guys stay there, like there's no forgiveness. If, if that is your steadfast position, if your heart is so hardened to what God is doing. So that's where we're at. It's halfway through Matthew 12. Cool. Here's the deal. I want to ask just a very open question that y'all can answer. So what are the centerpieces of, gospels, of Matthew's gospel so far? What do you notice in the agenda? What seems to stand out to you? What does Matthew highlight about who this Jesus is? Faith. Yeah, I mean, Matthew as an outsider who has been welcomed into the family of God, I think is highlighting a lot of Jesus' work with those outsiders. What else? Matthew certainly wants us to see that exodus story. Jesus is a fulfillment of this new exodus from slavery into freedom, a new people, a new covenant in a way. Anything else? What? 
Yeah, there's a lot of talk, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, around sort of the, the internal versus the external, that God's interested in a heart renovation, not going through the emotions, not performing, not the hypocrite of wanting everyone to see obedience, but a, a true heart renovation. Anything else? It's great. And some of you in your life groups will continue to have those discussions of things to, to notice and to pull out of the book of Matthew. But it became just this moment today to kind of do this mass overview and to kind of see where we're going in the story, where we've been and where we will continue. And so, um, but we're going to move into a time of communion where we do come to this table. And the good news that this table represents, that God is the welcoming God, that Jesus eats a meal with sinners, which is good news because that is you and me. And this table is a welcoming table for sinners to go, yes, I believe that Jesus offers me tremendous grace through his body and through his blood to sit and to dine with the God of the universe.